following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Have you heard about Moo Money? Moo Money? Moo Money is a rewards program that lets you earn cash every time you buy real milk. I use mine to buy movie tickets. Movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. It was a musical. Uh-huh. Anyway, just head to MooMoney.com to start earning moolah. Got it. Moolah. Hurry, or everything I told you will be moot. Oh, please, no more moos. Someone's a little moody. Open to legal residents of the state of California, 18 years of age or older. Visit MooMoney.com for official rules, terms, and conditions. My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Matt. Hey, Satchel. How's it going, dude? Yeah, it's going. It's pretty good. You know, how about you? Just chilling out. I've, I've been in this, like, real nostalgic place lately. I've been listening to uh, uh, Green Day. Really? Like, yeah, like Dookie, you know? Oh, my God. You just like, I like still have this uh, this t- like I, and really I got into it. I hadn't even listened to the record for a while, but I have this T-shirt uh, from when they went on the Dookie tour. It's like all mangled up. Like it looks like the kind of shirts that Urban Outfitters would like make. Like look all like old and torn up, but it actually is. You know, it's authentic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's authentic. Awesome. And I was like, I should listen to this. Yeah, <laughs> man, I don't even have that, and I'm like a humongous fan. It's oh, yeah. funny, like, and it's funny you bring that up actually because, um, you know, I think uh, people my age, I'm like 27, like, Green Day is like a, a big entryway into uh, punk music, and it's just funny seeing as you get older how like the, that fandom splits, where it's like people that are super into Green Day when they're like 10 or 11. Like, once they hit 14, and for me, that's when American Idiot came out, and that's, like, when, like, yeah. a whole new fandom for them came. Um, you know? That's real, yeah. A lot of people yeah, were yeah. like, they're selling out. They're not punk rock anymore. <laughs> I'm like, it's still good. Come on, you guys. But no, there's, like, yeah, a yeah. serious split. And then, like, I eventually, like, Green Day, like... Which is funny, because most of those people, it's like, I was into them younger but it's like i was anti-establishment before i was even fully aware of what the establishment was yes like, yes you know most of us were that's ridiculous i it it really it, it kind of it irks me satchel uh because like <laughs> yeah like i got into playing guitar and got into a band because i was really into like green day and i eventually got into the clash because it's like a gateway band where you start learning about like punk history through them um and I never yeah. forgot my roots. I always still like Green Day. I, there's uh, they they have something about them that like I really enjoy. And um, it's just funny once you like start playing like at these punk shows and ska shows and stuff. The 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 it's it first off like having that community is like really cool. Where it's like yeah, there's all these type of shows going on around like a city, and you don't even like realize it until you actually yeah. like head into a building it's out. like oh there's a yeah. ton of people here and they're all connected you know um but then it's also hilarious of like the politics of these communities too of like <laughs> how do i navigate this like if you're in a ska band my god like you better be doing upstrokes because it's not real ska if you're not doing upstrokes you know <laughs> uh and then like with punk bands like god forbid you like green day because no like there's the, there's the hardcore ones that are from the 70s and 80s where it's like black flag and it's all like no melody just straightforward but if you like have a melody on it and then it's more like 90s punk and oh i don't know about that you know <laughs> it's just ridiculous it, it really is this like ecosystem that like 
And it, I love well, this. For, for personally, just like this is an aside, but like, isn't the whole point of like punk rock of like, oh, just like play fast and like do your own thing? That's like the whole right. like, ethos of it. And then it's like, right. no, you have Fill to wear your elbows, you know? Yeah, you have thing. to wear jean yeah. jackets and you have to pin things on it. That's real punk rock. It's like that's a rule. Like you're breaking your first safety pins. rule. If you own a sewing machine, throw it away. It Ugh. needs to be safety pins. <laughs> People will think you bought it straight up. Yeah, but like I think these things probably definitely do uh, exist in gaming. Like I think it's such a like diverse field of like what you're into, what you like to play. Like that there are these tons of like fan communities like that exist. Oh, online. for sure, dude. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in everything. You know, you're mentioning these sort of like venue like some might call it snobbery i think it's just like you're part of community you learn about the legacy you get an appreciation and then you get precious about it you know (laughs) um the like i think about like sundance or whatever where like you go to sundance and i I, like you run into everybody like feels like a need to kind of let you know like how many sundances they've been to so it's like oh yeah well this is my fourth sundance and this is this is my ninth sundance you know i remember back when they used to have a b c and d and then like in the back of the room like there's like this guy with a big sombrero who like slowly lifts his head and he's like this is my 50th sundance it's like a it's a big thing you know it's like It's like to be a part of it to know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it's like who is the like ancient one here who has been to every single one who has all the knowledge, the elder, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I totally hear it's totally a thing in video games. Um, it, it it feels like a thing in video games with regards to like the subject matter that it's going through. It feels like it with video games. Like, I mean, if you're a part of the fighting game community, like. There's a special kind of intimacy there, you know what I mean? If it's not really there with platforming, and I almost wonder if that's just because like Mario and Sonic, all these like flagships, like sort of everybody sort of has a platformer as like a touchstone. Um, but it's almost like if it's the more niche it is, the more like passionate like the the community is. You you feel that way? Yeah, I think so. I think like there's the like I guess like the general overview is like there are people that argue what is in particular a game and then so that like splits a room in half but then you like go deeper and yeah there are these like communities i think like platformers outside of like you know the marios and whatnot like it'll be like no it has to you know there there are certain physics that you have to nail and everything and there's like a certain look for it and but um no like there's a ton like i I, like role-playing games there are uh I think, like, especially on PC, where you have, like, this, like, huge library of, like, indie games and developers and whatnot, um, that you'll see, like, a lot of these, like, very specific um, genres, subgenres, and communities around them prop up. Um, things like, I know, like, adventure games, like, seeing them, like, come back in the last few years, and then people going, like, no, adventure games have to be, like, extremely strict and then you actually go back and play these old adventure games and realize they're extremely like not user-friendly and like you're seeing why yeah, some yeah, changes yeah. oh my gosh made. that is so true dude like yeah. i think about you know now i want to take back what i said about platforming because i mean you think about Mega Man and like the Mega Man community where yes <laughs> like people wanted a true to form Mega Man game to come out again and they were rallying for it and inafune just like came in the middle of the night and was just like, hey, I'm here. I'm going to make, what, Mighty Number no. 9. Oh, yes. Like, give me your money. Like, the fans speak. They give him, like, what, like, 
close to a million dollars. I don't even know. A lot of freaking money. Just like a lot of money. And what turned out to be the true to form Mega Man game? It wasn't what Inafune did. Even though he's like the granddad, it actually ended up being uh, Shovel Knight. Yeah. You know, it ended up be- like because it turned out you, you, the source came with baggage of all the issues and you needed somebody who both appreciated the old thing but was able to bring all the innovations that people wanted over time. And it yeah. was. It, it's really cool to see. Um, it's really cool to see that happen, and it's also really cool to think about how um, how building for a community, how designing for a community, for whatever it is, whether it's a genre or something else, like um, the the kind of challenges that come with it, the the balance that you have to strike, and the the, the hurdles you have to jump through to release something, the pressures to release something where. You play a game or you listen to a band or you watch a film and you feel like it gets you the way that it got you before, but it's better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds that sounds interesting. So yeah. let's talk to someone about that. <laughs> yeah, let's talk to a couple people about this because I think there's like at least like two verticals that we can cover here to really kind of dig into what's cool about – uh, designing for a community and and uh, I guess contributing to like a scene. Yeah, sweet. Let's do that. And excuse us for a minute to thank our sponsors, LifeLock and Amika. More about these sponsors later in the show. We're going to talk to Leighton Gray, the co-creator and co-writer of Dream Daddy, which was published by Game Grumps. And afterwards, we're going to talk to Kevin Cole, an indie designer who created the game Hack. So, Layton, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, I guess my first question, if you could just briefly, for people who might not be initiated, explain kind of in a snapshot what Dream Daddy is. So Dream Daddy is a dating sim where you play as a hot dad and your goal is to meet and romance other hot dads uh, while also trying to raise your 18-year-old daughter who's just about to leave for college. Um, it's a pretty straightforward dating sim. Uh, your dialogue choices affect how uh, other characters in the game view you. There are some mini games scattered throughout. Um, and it's just as much about uh, kissing cute dads as it is about being a good father to your kid and uh, what it means to grow up in a single parent household. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm actually, you know, it actually didn't really hit me. I mean, it is totally a dating sim, which for a lot of Western gamers may, depending on how deep into the scene or not, they may not be completely initiated with like dating sims. Did did you glean a lot of inspiration from, um, I guess like it's, it may, it's a bit bigger in Japan from like, did you glean inspiration from other dating sims or did you kind of want to go in fresh and, and take your own kind of take on it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a really big fan of dating sims and visual novels in general. Um, And during the kind of researching portion of working on the game, uh, Vernon Shaw, the co-creator and co-writer of the game, and I uh, ended up playing a lot of them. Uh, Just trying to, like, understand the trappings of the genre and, you know, what tropes we could use in Dream Daddy and uh, which ones we wanted to, like, modify or subvert. Um, so we ended up playing a lot of games like uh, Lady Killer in a Bind, Asago Academy, Rose of Winter, which is probably one of my favorites, uh, Katawa Shoujo, of course, Hotful Boyfriend, the one where you date birds, was a huge inspiration for Dream Daddy. Right on. That's cool that you guys played Asago. Which route did you yeah, guys play? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, what, my feelings won't be hurt. Which, which route did you play? <laughs> um, I think I romance Peanut Butter Gamer, but you know Vernon romanced you. 
<laughs> dude, yeah, dude. Austin is a Austin's a lady killer. I totally get it. Um, <laughs> you know, anytime so... a dating sim pulls out the uh, slight spoiler alert and any t- like uh, selective amnesia, I'm so about it. <laughs> That's great. So listen, all right. So so obviously, uh, Vernon is kind of our friend in common. Um, I want to say it must have been two years ago. Um, it was when Game Grumps were doing their first East Coast tour. They were doing their first tour in general for the Let's Play stuff. And um, Vernon was kind of like doing a lot of administrative representation kind of work on on their behalf. Uh, so he was traveling with them. And when they came to New York City, um, he like called me as like, hey, do you want to like meet up at a bar or whatever and just kind of like talk, like catch up, whatever. And, you know, as we're talking, he's explaining this idea that he had been sitting on for the longest time. Uh and the way he kind of started, he was he was effectively explaining the beginnings of what is now Dream Daddy. Uh, in it, he started. Uh, he kind of took me. He's like, "Let me take you on a little bit of a journey, <laughs> right?" And he starts talking about Tumblr and sort of this interesting trend that he's finding in, and in sort of like a a fixation on dads. So he brought up like the uh, was it dads at Disney account. Where it's just like people who take photos of like really attractive dads at Disney World or Disneyland and mm-hmm. a couple of other things. And he was just sort of like, I think that there's something here. I think that, that we can – we can like a story can be made around this fascination with, with dads. But it has to be wholesome. Like that was like his word. It has to be wholesome and it has to be like all these other things. And I was so wrapped up in like what he was talking about because he was essentially like – trying to figure out like the language of the internet or at least our weird corner of the internet. And I wondered if you could like speak to just like this, this journey, cause I imagine you're part of the journey in your own capacity, like this journey, this journey of finding the language of your audience or finding the, finding your audience in general, like what, what that was like and finding out the things that they like. Cause the topic of dads, like, from a very normative kind of perspective is like, wait, what? It sounds random, but clearly by the popularity and by the excitement and hype around it from multiple communities, it's something that like people didn't know that they wanted, but they actually wanted. Okay. I'm going to give you a very long roundabout answer on this thing that, uh, For sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm super fascinated with this topic and why things on the internet are popular uh, for certain subsets of people. And so when I initially had the idea for Dream Daddy, it really did stem from like everyone's fascination with dad jokes and dad culture and just a a proliferation of like dad related memes. Uh, Once I came up with that idea, I brought it to Vernon and, you know, everything spiraled out from there. But when we were putting it together, you know, there was an understanding of like, we are aiming this towards a lot of young people who use the internet and the number one thing you can do to alienate that subset of people is like being really obvious uh, and making direct references to memes or the internet because it, you know, like we say in the game, it just immediately dates your thing and it's not funny. It's not cool. Um, So what you have to do is start or what we tried to do at least uh, is understanding where, uh, what the source of all the memes are and uh, to talk about that a little bit. Sorry, I gave a talk on this subject last month, um, so I'm, I'm going to dip in and out of that. Uh, but so, movements in art history. In the past hundred years, we've gone from uh, modernism, which was like this very genuine exploration of, 
you know, we have all these new uh, types of media and we want to explore things and be uh, just try new things and be excited about what we're doing. And then as uh, we were getting into like the 50s, 60s, we kind of moved into postmodernism, which was a complete rejection of modernism. Like, ugh, this is dumb. Irony is what matters. Like being cynical is what we want to convey in our media. Um, and so right now, uh, one of the big things that's changed since postmodernism was kind of a thing uh, is the internet. And I think you can look at something like, uh, I think South Park is a really great example of postmodernist media because sure. it's very like very sneering and saying like, and does any truth really matter? And everything breaks down and both sides are horrible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the only way to be right is to not care. Right. And um, now we've kind of entered this period that uh, our historians are calling metamodernism, which is kind of uh, the balance between modernism and postmodernism. And so it acknowledges that, you know, on one end there's sincerity and on the other end there's cynicism and that media now can't just be solely one or the other. And so uh, stuff that ends up being really successful are things that kind of oscillate between those two poles of, you know, this seems silly on the surface, but actually has a deep emotional core. Um, And you can look at like a lot of things uh, that are super popular right now, like uh, Steven Universe, Rick and Morty, Bojack Horseman. I just named three animated shows. Animated shows are really good at doing it. (laughs) Um, But that's kind of what, strikes with people and so that was our approach with dream daddy is having this thing that seems silly and jokey on the surface um but deep down is a really like deeply emotional story yeah uh because if you just start and i guess if you look at uh just any meme in general like what are memes but extremely condensed storytelling um with like you know world building and kind of saying like a universal truth in a couple of sentences or in a tweet yeah um yeah, so I've, or you know when, when two memes, memes collide, it becomes art. this compound story that you can't help but ask yourself at face value. There's so much here that it like it's amazing that this isn't lost amongst thousands of people, but a lot of people get it. No, I'm t- I'm totally with you. That's yeah. so wild. Like there is there seems to be this amazing time capsule worthy quality of being earnest but also self aware. And not losing yourself, but not being naive. That, 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 that's really great. I think, like, who said that? Yeah. Um, I think it was David Foster Wallace talked about his struggle with, like, no, I want to be honest and not be ironic kind of thing. And it's I think people took, like, maybe his books as being ironic when he was really trying to be honest. Or Another comparison, I guess, like, it's on my mind. It's not the greatest comparison because... Um, the subject is someone that made like the worst movie ever, but um, I think the reason, um, like the room and Tommy Wiseau and the Disaster Artist, like there's so much like a connection there. It's because he's just sincere. Like I think right. people, it like, was earnest. It was an earnest try. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of like that. Like if you ever read that book, like and the movie's coming out, but like that's kind of like the heart of the story. Is like, dude tried. Like he, there, there's a heart to it, and I think that's something to be celebrated. Kind of thing. It's like. Yeah, there yeah. there's a sincerity to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I think um I'm a really big fan of just really, really bad <laughs> horror movies. Um th- those are my usual go to's when I'm looking for something to watch. And I think there's just something like really wonderful about things that are ridiculous that people clearly tried uh really hard and put their all into. Like I, I don't know, it- it's hard to see somebody being 
honest or like living their truth and making the thing that they wanted to make. Like, I think there's always something so special about um, just honesty in art and being very sincere about it. And I think that's really important. I'm I'm totally I'm totally with you. It, it I have a similar thing with uh like Sega Saturn PlayStation One era like voice acting, where it's just <laughs> yeah everything is terrible, but everything is also completely sincere. And there's just something there are these old like these these sites they look like they were made on like an Angel Fire web ring of just like links of MP3 <laughs> files, and I can sit there all night with my friends just going through all of them because there's something. There is like a unique quality about them that it, it's almost unrepeatable. Yeah, it's so charming. It isn't like I to what you were saying before. Like I, I think um, you know when Dream Daddy came out, people were like surprised it blew up because um, I guess people would consider visual novels or dating sims as niche uh, in the West. But like I think to, to your point, like it is like you're approaching um, the subject with sincerity, and that's like hasn't been done enough and it's like yeah people are going to react positively when yeah like S- sincere sincerity and thoughtfulness for sure um i i remember like this was just before it was sort of coming out like there sort of being this and even me sort of feeling a little bit a, a little bit like both excited and worried because it, it seems it almost seems like the release of the game is kind of like dancing on this particular line where I 100% understand and, like, relate to him, like, sort of a part of, like, that zeitgeist of, like, dadships and, like, this celebration of, like, dad culture and how funny and, like, lowbrow and, like, earnest it is. Um, But then I remember there being a lot of discussions, at least on my timeline, about, like, ooh, but, like, we're also kind of – we're kind of walking very intentionally into this territory – of what it might be like for, like, a dad who, like, divorces his wife because he realized that, you know, that he's, like, gay in the middle of his life or something and he's, like, getting remarried or he might be single, like, on the market. Like, how is that sort of um, – how is that very real and, like, very palatable but obviously, like, not really that much talked about season of life going to be going to be approached in this? And is it going to caricaturize it? in the way that all of these exciting kind of Tumblr-esque things kind of do. And it was amazing to actually play and find out that it was taken really seriously and that, like, it was considered and it was handled in this very delicate way where it was this thing that existed that wasn't skirted around, but it also didn't cheapen or, uh, I guess, like, you know, again, like, caricaturize, I guess... I don't want to say like the 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 darkness, but some of the more somber tones of like starting over. You know what I mean? Um, if for for somebody mm-hmm. who for somebody who actually is in that situation where they have a daughter and they're a guy and they're like looking to marry another guy, I'm curious to know what how what was what was the process and sort of the challenge? Like, what were some of the rules that you guys had in place um, in straddling that line in a way that I I see as successful? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, it was something where literally every single stage of the process, we were constantly asking ourselves, like, does this fit the tone? Is this respectful? Are we being inclusive? Um, it was just like a constant every single day thing for us. And um, from the beginning, you know, we didn't, 
we didn't want this to uh seeing that vernon and neither vernon and i are gay men like i'm a bisexual lady but that's a very different experience and at no point did we ever want to talk over the lived experiences of actual gay men or try to say this is exactly what it's like to be a gay single father and also um as someone who is like constantly on the lookout for like positive good uh queer media i'm i hate to say that i'm tired of this but i'm tired of every single story about queer characters being like angst over coming out or like they can't be together like where the entire plot revolves around their sexuality like i watched uh carol for the first time the other day which is a gorgeous beautiful wonderful film um but the whole time i was just like why do, why can't we just have movies or, or games or comics or whatever where like queer characters can just exist? Like, where's our, you know, tons of shitty rom coms where right. you know <laughs> instead of just a guy and a girl, it's two girls, and that's the whole thing. Like, it, it's just normal and like completely normalized. Like, we're not commenting on it; it's not a huge deal. Um, so, a big thing with Dream Daddy was trying to normalize that and you know not go into the uh ins and outs of like day-to-day life for a queer person trying to date um we just wanted it to be in a world like in this fantasy world where everything is you know totally fine you don't have to worry about holding hands in public or like who you're out to or whatever else definitely that's cool and that was definitely the vibe that i got as well it was it was cool to kind of just be in that space for a moment i guess yeah it was really um nerve-wracking when we announced it uh for a lot of reasons but especially because i saw so many people uh, especially on my twitter timeline talking about like i'm sort of excited for this but what if it's making a joke out of my sexuality and it was like the most heartbreaking thing to see that over and over and you know we, we were kind of at a point where we didn't want to uh, directly address it like we just knew that we had to wait for people to see it and speak for itself because there was never you know I don't think that inclusivity or diversity should ever be a selling point like I really just think it's the baseline bare minimum you can be doing to making you know for making quality art um, so we didn't want to you know publicly be like oh no guys it's actually super inclusive like it, just the couple of weeks uh, or I guess maybe the month in between announce and actual release was just really like tough on us because it's just like oh oh we don't want to yeah we would not do this on purpose to hurt you like we have taken so many steps to make like this is for you that must be so nerve-wracking like oh like did did it have you even second guessing or you guys are pretty confident that it it you you did the best you did to you did the best you could to kind of make sure that things were handled well i think we were pretty confident there were some like last minute things that we ended up changing that like we had just not even thought about um, just based on like people's responses to streams and stuff. But through the entire process, we were constantly having other people reading it um, and sort of doing like sensitivity reading with friends and, you know, people in our network and yeah. people who are queer or trans. And yeah, we were just trying really hard to uh, make something that people could feel comfortable and safe playing. That's awesome. I totally feel it. Wasn't there like a huge buzz and following right up until the release like where i was just like really building as like a huge wave of like people really anticipating it like that's got to be so nerve-wracking yeah and then we had to uh push the release because we had so many like game breaking bugs and our team had never launched a game of this size before and to have 
like 70,000 people on Twitter simultaneously uh, asking where the game is while we were desperately trying to like Oh my goodness, to, like, I remember QA. that. I remember Vernon on Twitter. Like I just remember, I was like, oh no, I feel so bad. <laughs> Yeah, there. I mean, the night that we had to delay, like the the entire team was crying. Like it was really oh, somber man. and bad. And uh, there was a night, uh, the day before the game came out, um, where you know we still, you know, it was ready and we were pushing it and it was on time. And then it just wouldn't go through with steam. And uh, I was just kind of like, well, okay, that was a year and a half of work down the drain, and this was, you know, an exercise in public humiliation. Oh, and no. we're, we're gonna, it's it's fine. <laughs> Um, like, I was so sure that, you know, it, nobody would play it or like it um, and that it would break. And then, of course, woke up next morning to it being, like, the number one best-selling game on Steam for the day. Like, it was really overwhelming. Oh, man. roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you have any more questions, Satchel? I had one more. I'm, I'm good to go. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. <laughs> Of course. I don't think I have a question. I just wanted to say, when I saw that Pup was in the game, I was like, oh my god. (laughs) They're amazing. Yeah, we got you, man. Uh, Anybody who likes indie music, Dream Daddy is uh, definitely the game for you. It was was a big excuse to just, like, shove all the bands that we like in there. Oh, I'm sure. To reach out to all the best. Yeah, like, when you you pulled Baths on it, I was like, oh my gosh. And the the fun thing was, okay, I'm just going to, like, totally, like just geek out for a second like the fun thing <laughs> was seeing and this is how i knew it would be promising was seeing all of like all of the kind of talent that you kind of pulled in from like the edges to like do different things so like baths was definitely one i know that was one people were really excited about and what i think like pitchfork did a little piece on it and then seeing like all these different people that i follow who are totally a part of you know just like embracing like that sort of like dad excitement that dad see you know like like drew green like he did like some environment stuff I think yeah, like, he did. Drew's I saw wonderful. him talk a little bit about it and like show a little bit of stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's amazing. So they're like, they're pulling people who are totally in this world to like contribute to it. There's no, like, there's no, there's no mystery that Bass is totally in that too. And like, it was just really <laughs> cool to see like the quintessential celebration of like this really cool thing. And to just, I don't know, be able to encapsulate it like that. It was really awesome. Yeah, it was really beautiful hiring people um, because every single time we pitched to someone, they would just be so excited. And a lot of, you know, choosing who we wanted to approach was kind of about like, this person loves some dads. They're going to do a good job. And just everyone, like every single person we worked with was so passionate and excited. And um, I think that like truly embodies the spirit of a dad because dads are earnest. They're sincere. It goes back to the metamodernist thing. Like, you, you know, dads just really love Jimmy Buffett and they are not sorry for it. Um, <laughs> and so that was that, that, that ethos carried over um, to the rest of the thing. And, and I was just as stoked about having baths on like Will is one of my favorite musicians. And, you know, he came to consult on this script and just being able to read through it with him and get his feedback was incredible. Um, but when he sent us that theme song, uh, I did a lot of the work. From Dream, for Dream Daddy, like sitting in a Starbucks because my apartment Wi-Fi was awful at the time, and uh, yeah. he sent us the file, and Vernon and I were listening to it at the same time. And like the moment it got to the part where he started singing, because we had no idea what the theme song was going to be like, I just like immediately burst into tears in the Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And I feel like by, by the end of like the months that I spent in that Starbucks, I feel really bad for the people who worked there because I was constantly sitting in the corner being like, yeah, so we need to write this kissing scene. And, you know, it, it's got to like ride the line between wholesome and spicy and you know, just, just constantly talking about dads uh, in the corner of a Starbucks and then crying intermittently every time we got oh. new assets or songs. Those baristas have amazing stories now. <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Thanks for talking to us, Leighton. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you guys so much. This is super fun. And we're taking a quick break to say support for Overworld comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper. When savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience, Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's visit meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over 1 million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. Ham, sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Okay, now we're going to have a conversation with Kevin Cole, the founder of Super Try Studios and an indie designer behind the game Hack. Okay, Kevin, thanks so much for uh, joining us. So we've been talking a little bit about like designing for your community and kind of figuring things out. And like one of the first things that came to mind for me was like scenes and like um, like particular topics that different communities gather around. One genre in particular that sort of comes to mind for me are roguelikes because I find that if anybody says anything on the internet about roguelikes and they are even like a millimeter off, um, there is a barrage of people that come in ready to correct them <laughs> about what it is and difference between that and a rogue light and things like that. And I know that you recently developed um, – uh, and released uh, a game uh, that sort of fits into that. It's on Steam right now called Hack. Um, first off, congratulations. And second, um, I was wondering if maybe you could describe, uh, you know, in like really quickly, like what, what Hack is. Um, so Hack is a uh, graphical – but if I, if I was if – so on the topic of communities, if I was to describe Hack to like – someone in on the roguelike scene i'd say it's a uh soft berlin interpretation roguelike uh it's graphical but turn-based uh and if i was and if i was describing it to someone who is sort of outside of the scene um it's a it's a role-playing game uh it it has some arcade uh values to it but it also has uh a story and and and, and uh it's it's a game I wanted to make because I wanted to understand RPGs. Uh, and I kind of came up with this sort of fantasy game about uh, why we play video games and what we get out of that sort of weird, violent vacation. <laughs> that's a good way. Of violent vacation. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way of describing it. Um, what... um, so I, I, I just want to say one more thing, like about like why rogue like r- typically roguelike fans will will jump on what is and isn't a roguelike. 
Go uh, for it, yeah. And, th- and that's because of something called the Berlin interpretation. Okay. Uh, it, which is, uh, like, back in... Um, I don't know if it was the 90s or the 2000s, but like uh, there was a roguelike conference where in in Berlin where they basically nailed down what are like the the canonical elements of a roguelike. And this is getting uh, really intense. Yeah, I know <laughs> it is. It's it's super intense, and uh, that that includes like uh, turn based. Uh, is it does it use ASCII characters? Uh, is there permadeath? Uh, like, is it on a grid? Like. There, there are all these little elements that like add up to what a Berlin interpretation of a roguelike is, and that's sort of why there is this community that instantly knows if something's a millimeter off from being a roguelike. Wow, I did not know about all of that. Yeah, I played like roguelikes before. I'm now I'm like, oh, I guess I'm like missing something. Like, I did not know there was a conference. A yeah, it, it, it was. It's weird. Like, there's not one of those for like platformers or anything. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> that's perfect. So, with with regard, since there is such a um, a strict and um, critical kind of scene around this genre of game, like, what kind of challenges or things did you have to keep in mind when you were building this to kind of stay true to? I don't know, whatever would be traditionally canonically celebrated about releasing a roguelike game. Uh, I guess um, I kind of just accepted early on that I I can only make a game that I want to play. Like, I can't, like, I can try and, like, uh, tweak hack to appeal to an audience to, like, a certain extent. But, like, I I think I kind of saw that there was this intense roguelike scene that I was sort of... uh, orbiting around and and trying to get to love me but also still trying to be myself um and i i think i made a lot of friends who are like in the hardcore roguelike scene and uh they they basically told me that this would like the the game i was making looks like looked like it would be a good like ambassador game so mm. it was really sort of like i wasn't part of the scene um but i was making games around the scene and to bring people into the scene. I was sort of the border patrol of, of roguelikes. <laughs> oh man. So, so on that front, like, I mean, it's out now and like yeah. people have obviously been responding because people react to things, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost too much. Like as, has it been a success in that regard or I'd say hack has been a success. Uh, it's everyone who backed it on Kickstarter, like I have, I, they super love it. Uh, my friends super love it. The people who've discovered it on steam, super love it. Um, but we're, we're small. So I, I, I think the people who hate it have, or don't like it. I've just been like, eh, it's not worth the time. So, <laughs> uh, I don't, I haven't gotten a lot of bad press on hack. Every, everyone's been super positive. Um, but there's like, I don't know. I don't think, Honestly, I don't think there's that much to hate. Fair enough. You'd be surprised. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'll find it. <laughs> I'm interested, like, what's, like, because, uh, you know, roguelikes, unless, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was kind of, like, uh, obviously, like, an old-school genre, but it kind of went quiet for a while, and then it kind of, like, ballooned back in the mainstream with things like Binding of Isaac and, like, Rogue Legacy. Like, I think that's accurate, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, like, what? What? What are like the hardcore, 
like reaction to uh, like something like Binding of Isaac, like so that's more in the mainstream and you know doesn't use maybe the old uh, an old school look or something like that. Um, I'd say like the reaction varies very much. Uh, typically, older uh, roguelike fans uh, just tend to ignore ro- uh, rogue lights and. Uh, younger, more energetic fans tend to like try and bridge the gap, try and get more people into these things. Like, it, it's 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 really like the scene is divided between uh, strict Berlin constitutionalists and uh, like living constitution Berlin interpretationers, <laughs> like people who are like, no, we should expand this to bring more things in, and oh, and people who are like, no, the old ways are best, and it's. It's really yeah. It, that's really it. Is is it's like you've got you've got people who want to enjoy everything and celebrate and have the most games, and you have people who want to preserve like this tradition and this like easy categorization of the game they like. It sounds like a music scene almost. Where it's like <laughs> these, I know, yeah, right? Like these scenes like... from like the sixties and seventies. It's like okay, this is the original. But then as it evolves, it's like now it's evolving too much and it's getting into other genres that and it has to be pure kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't know. Like that. I liked the Mars Volta when they were purely math rock, you know? Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like I, I think I think both sides have value, weirdly. Like weirdly, like I'm I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to curry like all rogue uh fans favor, but like I I think it is good to have like uh, these strict definitions of genre because then people can find what they want easier. But what do you do when like a genre defying game comes along? That's just like what what happens when the David Bowie of roguelikes comes along? Did you try to like uh, skew like a lot of the like the the genre norms, um, or did you kind of? I guess there was a balance you were trying to strike. I've played a few more roguelites than roguelikes, which is. Ooh, just that's just really hard to say, but <laughs> uh, so I love Spelunky. Um, I love um, uh, Risk of Rain, uh, Nuclear Throne. Uh, I like these games that take a few elements from the roguelike genre and then uh, and then put their own like action or platforming mechanics underneath them. But I also love RPGs and I love Final Fantasy um, and I love old school games like. Uh, or uh, I guess not. Well, kind of old school games. I'm old. Uh, I love uh, As Your Dreams and the Mystery Dungeon series, uh, which are roguelikes, uh, but sort of use a more graphical, um, like JRPG anime flair to them. Uh, so I kind of wanted to make a game that was a rogue like that felt like a rogue light. So a game that's tactical and intense and strategic. But uh, things explode, bones fly everywhere, the screen shakes, and everything's colorful and fun. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Like, I, okay, I like I took a film course in college. I kind of slept through a lot of it, so uh, that's <laughs> on me. But like, it is like when you're studying something like that or like an art for art form. It's like you have like a, like a lot of these little tiny innovations. Uh, le- these all these films, but then there might be one that like balloons because it's like taking lessons from a lot of different um uh titles and stuff and it like i i guess like um one of my favorite games recently or like period is uh dark souls and i feel like that kind of mm-hmm. has that sort of 
the cyclical nature of what a roguelike is. There isn't randomness necessarily, but there is that like, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to go back and like retread my steps, but you know, approach it differently and like build up resources and and XP and stuff. So like, I don't know. That's, I, I like that idea of like all these tiny building blocks coming in, like building towards something. And I think that's like, I guess like in recent, recent memory, what's happened with like rogue lights, where they mm-hmm. come to the mainstream because they've taken a lot of different um, elements from the past, and it is crazy that's like a storied genre uh, that like is kind of not like it's overlooked almost like uh, how how far come, like I wouldn't even know this Berlin thing, you know? Like yeah, yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> I'd say the fantasy that like games like high difficulty high difficulty games like uh, Dark Souls and uh, other roguelikes sell is like the the fantasy of getting good at something because like I, I played alto sax in middle school and i practiced every day and i am not an alto sax player today <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so like some things you can just try relentlessly on and never get good at but like a good game like dark souls or, or a good game like or, or a great roguelike will sell you this fantasy of uh, you can learn this. You can accomplish this. Like you, it, it'll suck. At, like when when you fail, but like you'll have the knowledge that you've improved, and then you can move forward. And like that's sort of like that's sort of one of the ideas we play with in, in the plot of Hack. I yeah, I that's something that like resonates with me. I really love that idea of like no, just keep trying, and uh, yeah. you have to like practice makes perfect. And yeah, yeah. Do you have any more questions? I I feel like that's wonderful. Yeah, I I love the idea of like uh, um, like these little communities that you don't know about. Uh, I knew about like roguelike community, but like the history of it, I I want to like learn more yeah. about it. It's like when you like go in the history of like um a speed speed run record. It's like oh, there's like so many little details that like get overlooked that that culminates in something like great, you know? Yeah, I- or like every once in a while you like you come across this kind of like backwoods wiki. That like somebody was like documenting like the history and the changes of like a particular genre of game over time, and you're like, wow, I didn't even like realize that there were like movements to this. Like, it sounds like there are movements to like roguelike games. I mean, I mean, in, I mean, this kind of dovetails perfectly. Like, there are there are like movements in the like how we were kind of discussing like like modernism and things like that, and then there are also movements within like genre, not only thought and genre, and they probably play off of each other pretty well. Um, it's all really cool. I have uh, I have one uh, more just like small note on community. Yes. And uh, that's every every person who worked on this game, uh, my uh, writer, Hadley Sinclair, uh, my, mu- my musician, Joe Keneally, uh, my, my sprite artist, uh, Brian Townsend, we all went to high school together. Uh, we've all been friends for like more than uh, 10 years. And... Uh, it's, it's sort of like that, that was like, that friendship was like sustained through like a D and uh, Dungeons and Dragons role-playing community. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a small thing, but like the, the reason like we form like communities and friendships and networks of people is because we're all like missing a little thing or someone always does something a little better than us or someone's always a little like sturdier and readier and readier to like help us and support us. So like if like if you're making a game and you're looking to get involved in like a community, you might not have to look that far. Yeah. 
It seems like That's in gaming, like there, like I guess because like a lot of it lives online, um, and there's a real like engagement toward it. Like if you seek it out, you'll find it. Like that seems like mm. a really cool aspect of uh, the industry. Yeah, and indie gaming in general. The the collaborative part of gaming is easily like the best part of working on games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not not sitting and play testing for hours on end. I mean, depending <laughs> depending on the game, it could be fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thanks for talking right to on. us, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Uber disclosed a breach of 57 million passengers and drivers' records. Hackers access personal information like names and driver license numbers of the drivers and names, email addresses, and phone numbers of passengers. Though this breach was just recently announced, this personal information was actually stolen over a year ago. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats, threats you may miss by just monitoring your credit, like someone stealing from your 401k or committing a crime in your name. And if there's a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock can help you see more threats to your identity. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code FORBES. That's FORBES for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Up next, Paul Tassi and Eric Kane discuss the latest Destiny 2 controversy and talk about how loot boxes are breaking games left and right. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Paul. We're going to talk about Destiny 2, uh, another controversial game. Um, what's What's been going on with, with Destiny 2? Why are people so up <laughs> I feel like the intro of this is going to be <laughs> 10 minutes by itself because of all the stuff going on. Um People are kind of the most mad about Destiny 2, which is this uh, loot shooter from Bungie and Activision, uh, because most recently it was kind of found out that Bungie has been throttling kind of experience gains for some players on certain activities, and so it makes you kind of level up and, and earn items slower than you would if you're doing kind of certain activities in a row to farm them, and the game is all about farming, so this happens frequently. Uh, the reason this was extra controversial is because once you hit max level, the stuff you're earning are these things called bright engrams, which are essentially Destiny's version of loot boxes uh, full of randomized items that are also sold for real-world money. So on the face of it, it looks like Bungie was kind of purposefully slowing down the accumulation of these free loot boxes in the result of that would be that you would assume that people would be, be more encouraged to just buy them instantly. And uh, so that, along with a number of other kind of persistent uh, gameplay issues, has been kind of the, the at the forefront of the community's mind for the past week. And it's it's turning a little nasty online, shall we, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gamers are definitely up in arms. Maybe not quite as as much as Battlefront 2, but definitely there's a lot of anger. Um it's kind of a weird thing, like experience gain, you know, normally I would say, you know, it's, it's okay for it to be kind of slow. You don't want to just level up really fast, but it is, it does sort of change things when it's tied directly to a loot box. It, it kind of like, you know, Overwatch does the same thing. You level up, you get a loot box. Otherwise you have to, uh, you know, pay for them. But it, is, 
is there a way around this for Bungie to to make people happy again? Or I mean, what, what, what can they do at this point? The other issue was that once it was found out, it was Bungie immediately came out with a statement, and they never do that anymore. <laughs> and they said that, that <laughs> effective immediately, they were reverting it back to uh, just a normal system where there's no scaling up or down for XP. It's just whatever you get, that's what you get. And that seems pretty basic, but it also looked like, oh, we're just doing this because people did research and found out this exists <laughs> rather than, yeah. you know, this is, and I, I asked Bungie, I'm like, I'm like, can you tell me, like, was this a bug that you just didn't know about? Or was this something like you knew about and you were just doing, and they literally said they can't comment on it. So I assume that means it's not a bug <laughs> or else yeah. they would have kind of said that outright. So that's, that's a little weird on its face there. And I, I like, I think that the current system now should be okay I think, um, but it was also confusing because they then doubled the amount of experience that you need to get to a new level, and people were confused about that because it might not be as bad as it sounds because with, with this, how the system works now, it doesn't necessarily mean twice the effort, but they really didn't explain that well <laughs> to the community either, mm-hmm. so now everyone's kind of flipping out about that. So like even if they're, they're, they fix the problem pretty quickly... Th- their kind of lack of communication and transparency about all of this has been what's really bothered fans a lot. And, you know, that reminds me when I was, when I was younger, there was a local comic book store that had a sale half off sale. And I went in there and I, I went there all the time. So I knew what everything was, was priced at. And the owner had just doubled the prices on everything and then slashed them in half for the half off sale. <laughs> the old, the old <laughs> it's like, trick, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, you know, it I was, it was a little surprising to me as a kid. Um, okay. So in destiny two, you level up it, and now it takes what? 160,000 experience points to level up. Is that to get a bright engram? I mean, you're not really leveling anymore, but you, every, right, every time right. you do that, you get a, a microtransaction item essentially <laughs> for yeah. free. It's interesting. They don't actually scale that. Like each level takes a little bit more XP. They did the other games for a while, but then I think you hit a cap and then the cap used to be 80 and now it's 160. I, it took me a long time to figure that out, but Okay, it's not like Diablo's Paragon levels where it just goes on forever. It, it, this feels like part of a larger story about Destiny Two and players just being let down overall. I, would would you say that's true? I would say that is extremely accurate, and I think Destiny Two was a game that came off really well in kind of the first two or three weeks around launch, and kind of your first playthrough is really good and it's it's enjoyable and you can see some aspects where it improved but then the longer you play and Destiny is a game meant to be played for a long time the the less you know the more the cracks kind of show and I wrote about this today where it's it's really tough to be like oh this is the core issue with Destiny like it's not the XP thing it's not you know that there's no heroic strikes it's not any one thing it's just this endless kind of collection of minor issues that are all adding up to things that people just kind of hate. And a lot of that is stuff that was kind of taken out of the final version of Destiny 1 and not ported over to Destiny 2, uh, or systems that were changed or things like that. And it's I, I am very curious to see what Bungie does to respond to this, because the, the, the feedback, shall we say, is, is getting overwhelming. It, it seems like I'm seeing a lot of people say, you know, I was playing with all my friends at launch... And now, like, none of my friends play the game anymore. And it just seems like there's a huge drop-off in, in the player base, whereas it was kind of the opposite with Destiny. I feel like a lot of people in the beginning were like, wait, this game isn't anything like we thought it was. But then over time, 
more and more people kind of latched onto it and, and this became sort of a thriving community. Like, yeah, that was it, the, cause destiny was like so bad at vanilla launch, like in 2014 that it's as it, it, it just flat out improved over time. Like in, in a year, it was kind of a totally transformed game. And at that point it was like, no, no, seriously, like come back and play destiny. It's really good now. And then that trajectory kind of continued to some extent. I mean, there was less DLC, but it continued for, you know, two more years after that. And now I feel like the fundamental problem, I just thought there wasn't a fundamental problem, but <laughs> if there is one, it's that instead of kind of taking off where Destiny ended and just further improving, be like, okay, we got all these systems kind of perfected. Let's just improve them a little more. They just took like a meat cleaver and just started kind of hacking stuff out. And then the final product that arrived was, you know, some stuff was simplified and that was good, but a lot of systems were just kind of removed or kind of eliminated without for, with no real consideration of what that would mean for the game. And now in the longer term, we're, we're seeing how that works. Like if you change the loadout system or if you eliminate kind of ammo packs and things like that, and it all adds up to, to a product that people just don't want to spend as much time with, I guess. Well, it's kind of a weird, uh, dichotomy that's arisen because it's uh, you know one of the major criticisms that we've both and many other people have leveled against destiny too is that it feels like year four of destiny as in like it's not new enough to really feel like its own full game but at the at the same time like you're saying so many things have changed that it also feels like a, a, a game that has like you know, one step forward and two steps back in a lot of ways. Yeah, I got, I, I literally had an article titled that and I got in some trouble because people, the, the phrasing is weird because like people were like, no, I want your four of destiny. Like I really liked destiny when it ended and I wish this was your four of right. destiny. But what I meant by that is that also I think there's just a, a fundamental amount of fatigue that goes into playing the same game for four years, essentially nonstop. And because this is a sequel that's not really a sequel. Like there's no new enemy races, barely any new enemies period, no fully new classes. It is, it does feel very, very similar to kind of the stuff you've been doing for the last three years, but with these changes in a lot of ways, slightly worse. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's year four of destiny kind of in a bad way. Whereas either players wanted destiny one year four building on all the improvements, or they wanted a fully fledged sequel that does way stuff different adds a ton of new things and that's it's not that game either yeah yeah it's sort of confusing in a way i i I imagine it was something of a a task even to come up with a sequel to a game like that that had changed so much and and i I think i still think that some of the issues are just you know the the lack of you know new enemies really fundamentally new experiences uh and kind of ways that they seem to cut corners like I mean, so that there's the um, European Dead Zone. That's a pretty big, big area. But then there's one uh, patrol area that's just basically like two small platforms. Titan, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like, what's this? This isn't. I was, I was really surprised by that. I thought, I thought for sure there was going to be more that I just had to discover. But then it was like, no. And then what, what I've heard from previews of the expansion, maybe you've probably read more about this than me, but it, it sounds like some, some, some of the early previews are saying uh, this isn't looking good. Like. Well, it's the same I think, thing. What, I like, think the patrol uh, area was small with with no sparrows. Yeah, so like people bigger. were excited because yeah. it was you know oh it's it's a small expansion with a new patrol area like that's a big deal that hasn't really happened before with with one of the smaller expansions. But from what I from what we hear, Mercury is kind of just this small little circle, and then it has like a gateway to 
this kind of procedurally generated infinite forest, which is just kind of a bunch of interlocking platforms with differently spawning enemies. And that's like a new activity to do, kind of like a rift, like a Diablo rift thing, which is fine. Yeah. But, but yeah, I do hear the patrol area itself is pretty small. And like, if not on the level of Titan, probably even smaller than that. So I think the excitement of, oh, we have a new zone gets kind of neutered when it's like, oh, it's, you know, 200 square feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I, yeah, yeah, and then we'll no see. new raid, and I, I, yeah, it's I just I don't really understand where Bungie is coming from these days, like what their goals are, what they're trying to do with this game, with this franchise. It, it's it, they're it just it almost feels like they've just changed sort of as a company as as a as as, as a visionary developer like um, to something yeah. that we didn't expect. I mean, honestly. I have some sympathy for them, and I, I genuinely think they're just overworked is, is a huge chunk of this, because yeah. the reason that Destiny 2 didn't carry over a lot of the kind of good changes from Destiny 1 is that Destiny 2 has been being built for the last two years kind of separate from all like the live team working on the original game and making it better, and so when it came to time to release the sequel, which had pretty short development time given all the content they had to make in year one... Um, it, a lot of those changes didn't transfer over, and now they're scrambling to get out a, what is has to be two small DLC packs, but have to be substantive enough to please the community. And then I'm sure there's going to be a big fall expansion that's kind of taken king-ish, and that's something else they have to do. And I just, I think they're overworked. I think they needed way more time to focus exclusively on the sequel, which is mm-hmm. and. They spent their time building new areas, but that's that's it. They didn't build new classes or new enemies, really, or things like that, or really go kind of crazy with, with weapons or weapon design and ported a lot of stuff over there, too. So I, I think they had limited time and had to prioritize stuff, and it's just, it's not enough. And, like, that's the problem with Destiny is, like, it's almost never enough. Like, we've been having these conversations right. forever, and people really want Destiny to be just so much bigger than it is or than it even can be when Bungie yeah. is a company with finite resources. Though they have new, they have two other developers working on the game now as well. Without them, um, I don't think the sequel would have even happened right. at all. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing. Like, uh, you know, it's game as service. It's the, it's the ultimate sort of living game. That's going to, that they want people to keep coming back to. And so at this, at, as well, a part of me is like, Oh man, you've gotten, you know, you've gotten all this time out of this game, you know, dozens of hours of time. And, that's good enough for the $60 you spent on it or whatever, $80, $100. Uh, at the same time, it's like, well, they want you to keep coming back, so they need to provide a game that will inspire you to keep coming back. Even though it may seem like kind of ridiculous to expect so much out of a game, that is what they're offering. That's what they're saying this game is. But there is this idea of fatigue that you were talking about, and I think that it's hard to avoid that with any game franchise. Like I was, a, you know, I was so into Dark Souls when that game came out, and I played Dark Souls and I played Demon Souls. Partway through Dark Souls, Souls Two, I started to feel a little bit of, you know, burnout on the just. Even though this was a game I loved, I started to feel the burnout. Dark Souls Three. By the time I was done with that game, I was pretty much sick and tired of Souls games. They came out so close together, and you know, whereas like Bloodborne was exciting because that was a lot of new stuff, really radically new ideas. Uh, but I just don't think, you know, you know no, no matter how good a game franchise is, if you just come on, if you keep coming out with new content for it year after year after year, I think players are just going to start to tune out. Yeah. And with the Dark Souls example, 
you know, even even games like that, you're playing through a, a somewhat linear campaign that is at least kind of a diverse set of encounters, and you put maybe, I don't know, 80, 100 hours into that. But, like, Destiny people want to put, prob- like, a, the harder core people, hundreds of hours, and the hardest core people, like, thousands of hours. So if it's it's a Herculean task to design a game like that in the first place, and even harder when yeah. you don't have kind of enough time to do it. So it's they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, and they want... They want Destiny to essentially be World of Warcraft, but they, they're not supporting it with a sub, sub, subscription model. Like, they don't have right. the resources to kind of build it out like that. And I, I think that's starting to become very apparent if it hasn't been apparent already. Yeah, and then it uh, it, it isn't – I don't know about you, but I, and I don't actually know the numbers for this. But for most people that I've talked to, Destiny is mostly a PvE experience. Uh, it's the, the 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 crucible is fun and and people enjoy that, but I I, I feel like this is still a game that, that that the big draw is is not versus uh, player versus player, whereas something like Call of Duty that's really what sustains it from year to year, and I, th- I think it might I think it's probably a little harder to have a, a game that's really built around PVE rather than just like your yearly release of your twelve maps and you know the same gameplay you've come to expect every you know just seems like a, a more daunting challenge it is yeah and i mean we've seen this across the genre too like the division has struggled with this too where there's some pvp elements in that game but it's mostly pve and i mean that game never even amassed the following that that destiny had but that that too for a long time even in like the first year was struggling to put out content that would keep people engaged for the first year much less beyond that so i this is kind of a new genre where it's like you should be playing this game all year round and always have something to do in it where we haven't really seen that outside of kind of multiplayer games. Like you're playing Call of Duty or Madden multiplayer just throughout the year. And yeah. I can't imagine playing like Assassin's Creed all year round. Like there's, it just ends. Like you just run out of stuff to do. But because of the nature of these games and the loot and all the stuff you're trying to do, it, it's supposed to kind of carry on forever. But building something like that that pleases everybody is exceptionally difficult. Not that Bungie's doing like everything they can and, and doing everything right and they're they're terrible about communication and some of their decision making has been just nonsensical but i do kind of feel for them in terms of taking on something this enormous yeah is there i mean what what do you think like what what saves destiny 2 is it in need of saving it sounds like it kind of it sounds like it's in need of saving compared to destiny uh but like uh, yeah, I, it's it would take some pretty sweeping changes, like kind of Diablo loot 2.0 level changes, where yeah. t- put back in all the stuff from Destiny 1 that people liked, like all the stuff like that's what? feasible. I mean, even, you know, weapon rolls and just shorter cooldowns and heroic strikes, and custom matches. And th- there's a, just a laundry list of stuff. And it's, it's a lot of stuff to reintroduce, but and like some of it would be pretty hard like redesigning the whole loadout system to be like destiny ones again and not having this separate kind of dual primary you know third power weapon slot like that's the fundamental loadout of destiny 2 and to just alter that and reclassify all the weapons (laughs) would be incredibly hard uh but i also think they should think about kind of changes that don't have to do with destiny one and and, because i think you could make all those changes and people would still find that oh wait that wasn't actually the problem (laughs) in a lot of ways. And I I think they should take some kind of drastic steps. Like my idea is 
to ban exotics from the Crucible, from PvP, and then just mm-hmm. go nuts designing really awesome, crazy exotics, like, that fundamentally yeah. change how the game plays. And, like, balancing PvE around that would be hard, but if you just didn't have PvP, at least, as a consideration, I think that would help. So, even... I just, I wish in like general, that, yeah. they would just, they would separate PvE and PvP much more than they do. I think that's a good idea with exotics, but... I just feel like the PvP has poisoned the well for PvE in general, you know, and it has since the beginning. Uh, and I, I just, I don't know. It, it's, it's a, you're right. It's a huge monumental task to change like a lot of this stuff. What's up with the weapon rolls thing, though? Why, why did they change that in the first place? What's going? That so seems like such a weird. I was weird kind of decision. a fan of that at first because it felt good to play the game for like 60, 80 hours and be like, oh, I'm building a collection. And, like, with everything having a set role, like, I don't need to keep farming, like, for my hundredth version of this to get the right role. But there was literally a quote from Luke Smith before the game came out that was like, oh, well, we need a system where, like, when you get your tenth better devils, like a hand hand cannon, it's something exciting that is different than your first. And he's like, that's a question, like, we really need to answer. And literally, (laughs) they they never did. They never answered it. And there was quite literally no reason to keep getting duplicate weapons because you just dismantle them for parts essentially so i i don't think that kind of randomized roles and like farming a hundred versions of the same gun for like the perfect role is necessarily the right answer but i also agree that the current system where you just duplicates that you will endlessly get are totally useless because of fixed roles that should be changed somehow also yeah i mean and, and at least i mean yeah it's grinding me okay i feel like Destiny's magic in some ways was was built on its more uh what unintuitive systems the the weird ways you progress the weird uh, uh currencies that you had to build up um i it was it made it very grindy but it, it certainly kept you coming back for more that's the same thing with weapon rolls like yeah you might have to you know get a bunch of different versions to find the perfect one but at least that kept players like busy trying to find the perfect one and I, I mean, I, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I feel like and some changes, even it, with it's the taking, probably better game. to give the hardest core people just something to do, so they're not the most yeah. vocal people complaining. And like, yes, the current grind is bad because you're grinding for bright, bright engrams, which we've discussed is rigged against you. Yeah, or like shaders, or like just things that don't mean anything. So it's it's lost kind of any real motivation to keep playing in the end game. Cause even like I'm, you know, almost at max level, but I have no real incentive to keep playing at this point until the expansion. And whereas I might've before, if there was a lot more stuff I could be kind of in pursuit of. Yeah. I feel, I feel like the, the most, um, I was the most likely to play destiny before the taken King expansion, right before the taken King, when they changed a bunch of stuff. I think it was the most convoluted that, that the game was, but I think it also gave me the most, stuff to keep grinding for all the time. And every change since then has made it less likely for me to come back. And certainly it looks like Bright Engram's loot boxes have influenced the the design philosophy behind Destiny 2 in a pretty big way. I mean, and I think that's what, as we talk about Battlefront 2 and we talk about all these different games, like how is the monetization affecting gameplay? And even though Bright Engram's may not be as bad as the loot boxes in Battlefront 2, it certainly seems like they've affected how Destiny 2 was built from the ground up. Well, as soon as you start selling things that you're supposed to be grinding for, that alone is enough to kind of derail the whole system. 
And yeah. even if the items being sold or being sold are not kind of power gains or influences or anything like that, it still is a lot of stuff that like, oh, I completed the raid, I could get this cool ship or something. But now that's in a loot box, and there is no yeah. ship from the raid anymore, and things like that. So, and and when that those engrams become one of the primary things you grind for at the end, the fact that you can just buy them outright, it kind of negates, you know, the purpose of doing that. Because if you see someone with a full set of armor or an exotic emote or exotic sparrow, like you don't know if they earned that or if they just bought it. Right. And it kind of takes away, like what's the point of farming for all this cool looking stuff when people might just assume I just spent, you know, $300 on loot boxes to get it. Which, which is why this, you know, why you brought up the, the Diablo auction house and, and in ways, this is worse than that because this is even more multiplayer for one thing. It would be and worse if they were – if all the items in the game were in loot boxes. Whereas the auction house was right. selling pretty much anything you could get and it was way more efficient to just farm for, for in-game currency gold. It would be like farming for Glimmer or something and just buying all the weapons in the game for Glimmer in like an auction house or something. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's why it probably was similar. worse. Yeah, it is similar, yes. <laughs> It's a similar th- it's a similar kind of game because they both you know they're both about finding better stuff, you grinding for better stuff. I mean they're both loot grinders. Yeah. And the fun of those kinds of games is continually improving your character, improving their gear, playing the same things over and over again, getting better at them, getting to more challenging levels of gameplay, and this sort of this endless feedback loop. And if you break that loop. By giving people the ability to pay money to skip the loop, you break you break the game. Yeah, absolutely. And that sucks. Why do they keep doing this? That is that is the <laughs> they're question. breaking their own games. <laughs> I don't know. And so this this whole XP thing, like it just it doesn't. It's only it's only a minor change, really, to what's already fundamentally kind of a broken system. Yep, that is how most fixes work with loot boxes these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I I don't know. I I, I bought some. Um, currency in Call of Duty and bought a few loot boxes with it. I'd like to do that just to try it out. Mm. And the stuff in the loot boxes sucks in Call of Duty. <laughs> like I had one box Good, full of pistol grips. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is kind of, it's totally worthless. Like, what's the point yeah. of this? <laughs> I mean, there's some stuff. You get XP boosts and whatnot, but like, I, I don't want to open a box and get three different pistol grips. Excitement. <laughs> it's so exciting, yeah. yeah. So maybe that is the best system where the stuff in the boxes is just so bad. Yeah, (laughs) It's kind of like sometimes opening Overwatch boxes though too. It's like, oh great, I got another two emotes and a victory pose. Yeah, and a spray that I don't care about. And I can use like four. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I got an exotic skin. Oh, nope, it's a duplicate. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like 100 gold or whatever, whatever they give you. (laughs) Yeah, loot boxes, you know, I think that Here's another thing. I think that they're really popular right now and everyone's freaking out about them, but I do think that they have a limit in terms of how feasible they are to keep putting in games. I think we're bumping into that limit. We definitely are. I mean, more. Battlefront demonstrates that pretty clearly, that we've, we've yeah. kind of hit the max of like what people will tolerate in terms of how it affects gameplay. I mean, I say that now, but <laughs> maybe not. But well, yeah. it does seem like an important moment where everyone yelled so much they just scrapped selling them all together. And they said they're going to bring them yeah. back, but... Boy, do I doubt they can do that in any way that won't restart the whole controversy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think with cosmetics and buffs, like they can get away with it, but not with powerful star cards and, yeah. and other. You know, but I don't know. That, that game is just already such a disaster. Correct.
Have we heard any sales figures on that? Um, all we heard was like early UK physical sales. I mean, they were down, yeah, but it's, it's nothing, too hard to tell. From that. I think overall it probably is is down, but no, not great. And Destiny Two, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this expansion sells. I bet a lot of people buy the expansion just because. Well, first of all, a lot of people have the season pass, and second, people are sort of starved for content yeah, they just want right now. To do but, so, yeah, we'll play fifteen yeah. bucks for that. Like, it's it's only like three loot boxes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can get an expansion and then loot boxes now that would be the way no. I, I yeah i you know the, the other systems the older systems of um you know like call of duty with the map packs aren't very good either there's there's it's really it is a challenge to figure out how to monetize a game most, most places launch. are doing away with map packs now because yeah they just don't want to fracture the community and like call of duty is the only game really outside of a couple that's still doing that because they're just so big, they can keep getting away with it and selling thirty, forty bucks worth yeah. of map packs. But I, I predict eventually they'll do away with that. Also, I had an idea the other day. I was thinking, um, I'm kind of tired of these games that you have to level up in, mm-hmm. level up and unlock new guns and stuff. Like I kind of just want to go back to where you can just everyone has the same access to all the different weapons and everything, like really flat structure. And no one levels up and like gets all these extra perks and, and weapon unlocks like in Call of Duty. Or, and instead, you unlock new maps as a community via playtime or, or doing certain level – like certain like community achievements. So if you get this many hours of, of this kind of match, then a new map unlocks. I like that. And so everyone's working together to unlock new content, but no one's getting – no one's getting any content that nobody else has. No one's a higher level than anybody else. It's all very flat. But I think that would really keep people playing because, like, the more you play, the more you help unlock this new content. Yeah, that's a great idea. I like that a lot. Yeah. So, so hopefully somebody borrows that idea from me and then pays me lots well, we of just, money. We just solved the problem. <laughs> we solved <laughs> it right there. As we, Every week we're here to solve the problems with the video game industry and thankfully, there are so many of those problems that we'll never run out of things to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, uh, thanks for listening once again. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week to talk about more of the problems with the world and video games. Peace. That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast one. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Have you heard Spike's Car Radio here on Podcast One? It's comedian, actor, and writer Spike Ferrison sitting on the porch in Malibu talking to his famous friends about cars. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. He was all right. Don't try to hug him. Or Chris Hardwick. I could feel everything on the road. I mean, it was right. basically like, it was like unprotected sex for driving. <laughs> Jeremy Piven. I hold you know what, I think you and Jerry are spiritually tied to cars, <laughs> and I respect it and I love it, but I don't quite get it yet, but I want to get it. Other past guests include Jason Bateman, Russell Peters, and even Adam Carolla. Mr. Adam I just Carolla. go with the queen. I mean, the king role has been filled, but the queen vacancies are You're open. the queen of all media. Get new episodes every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, on the new Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. And if you like Spike's show, check out our other car shows like CarCast with Adam Carolla, Everyday Driver, or Shift and Steer, exclusively on Podcast One. 
springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.